The crypto contagion of 2022 stung almost everyone. DeFi saw a massive reduction in TVL and CeFi was effectively outright erased from the planet. But there are still people building incredible tools like Sid Powell at Maple Finance. And once this bear market is over, we're gonna see them rise to the top and see DeFi eat the lunch of JP Morgan and the legacy system. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've had in a long time. Sid is incredibly intelligent and interesting, and I love what they're building. You guys do not wanna miss this. That's dope. We should start with you telling us about what you're building. Uh, give us sort of the background on Maple and everything that you guys are doing. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the way the way that Maple works is it's like a capital market on chain. So what we're doing is we, we've built a platform where you can do pools of loans. And each of these pools has a kind of manager who approves the borrowers. And they kind of run like a credit strategy. So you can think of it almost like doing credit funds or you know miniature banks on chain and what we uh when we launched in may of 2021 we're lending mostly to market makers and market neutral funds so business loans and we did about two billion loans two billion in loans uh since then and then this year maple's uh shifting and focusing more on real world assets and yesterday actually we just announced the launch of a pool that will do t-bill backed loans so this effectively gives people access to very low credit risk uh, form of deposit and very liquid with daily withdrawals, but all happening on chain. And so those are those are loans that are one to one collateralized by T-bills. And how does that work? How does the person actually collateralize the T-bill? How do they digitize it? How do they tokenize it? What's the terminology? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So the, the way it works is that the Maple Pool will lend to an SPV so the SPV is doing the loan on chain and then it will off ramp the funds. This will likely go through Coinbase Prime, but there's a couple of other off ramps they can consider. And then they're going to deposit the funds in a regulated broker and buy the T-bills. So we don't actually digitize the T-bills. Instead, what we do is the T-bills get pledged as collateral for the loan. Uh, so this is one of one of kind of the evolving principles of real world assets. Do you, do you need to digitize a house in order to have a loan against a house on chain and in this case we just digitized the loan so the loan's a smart contract totally visible on chain all of the repayments can be seen there except in this case if the borrower defaults then we can go and repossess the t-bills sell them and use them to repay the loan in the same way you'd go and sell a house and 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 um uh use the proceeds to repay repay a home loan if somebody defaulted Right, but the T-bills can be liquidated immediately. You can't liquidate a house exactly. immediately. You so can't that, liquidate offers, a house. that offers some unique challenges then if we're going to tokenize assets like real estate, which has been talked mm -hmm. about for quite a while. And there are companies that yeah. are doing it in novel ways. I'm trying to remember what their name. Roofstock, I think, is it's one Roofstock. of the companies. that. And I met with them yeah. and at Mainnet in October. I had them on the podcast. And they do it through yeah. effectively buying the home in a Wyoming LLC, and then you yeah. own the Wyoming LLC and not really the house. Yes. And that transfers very novel, but I don't know how scalable. Yeah, no, that's um that that idea of like how do you increase the digitization of the underlying assets? Super difficult, right? And I think the um the idea of putting it inside a company like an LLC is very novel. Um, but you need to do you need to do a lot of them uh, for it to scale. And then there's the idea of like if we're lending against a house, we don't want to have to go and sell it. And probably the best the best way to sell it is probably not going to be to sell an NFT. It would be to have a large, you know, real world market of buyers. Um, so I'm interested to see how it plays out. We want to do more real world asset lending. The um, one of the challenges is a lot of people, in particularly in crypto space, uh, don't want to lock up their funds for you know 12 months or longer. And even a 12 month loan would be an exceptionally short uh, home loan. Thirty thirty years, yeah, yeah. So at the standard in the United States, yeah, it's a year. But I'm just yeah. kind of giggling because you're talking about crypto people. They 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 like to be liquid no. basically twenty four seven. That that investor yeah. mentality and lockup does not really exist to any great degree. Yeah, yeah. One of the things we've been looking at though is, um, you know, every whilst everyone's looking at real world assets, there's also this huge market that totally got deserted, which was the lending to market makers and hedge funds. Um, so the on-chain participants, those guys were all borrowing from Genesis, Celsius, BlockFi, um, many others, 
last year. That was probably 55 billion in loans outstanding at the start of 2022. And all of that's gone away. So whilst we, we do really want to see the real world asset market develop, the other thing we're looking at is how do we fix the problems of CFI? We, you know, on Maple did most, like most of that 2 billion in loans was uncollateralized. And that was, uh, that was fine when you could lend to market neutral firms and monitor their financials. But how do we serve that larger market that went away with the collapse of CFI? And what we're looking at now as well is could we, um, could we integrate with custodians so that they could pledge collateral with a custodian, but it's tied to on-chain loans. So I think that's a huge way to address that that market that's just missing now. Structurally, that's similar to what you're talking about with T-bills, right? You don't didn't exactly have the same yeah, principle. You just yeah, uh, that's insane though that you were able to do that uncollateralized. You have to be very sophisticated at monitoring these funds, right? Because we saw the uh, three arrows capitals of the world. Obviously, yeah. I don't think that the people that were lending them money necessarily had much visibility into what they were actually doing with it. No, no. It was interesting. Like before um, before that happened, they'd actually applied to borrow and had been turned down on the platform because the financials didn't make sense there. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you're right. You you had to, uh, I mean, to do those types of loans, we, we have delegates who do the underwriting on Maple. And so what they would have to do is monitor the financials monthly. So every month a borrower sends in the balance sheet um, profit and loss statement and, you know, accounts for the, the positions they have. But it's still, even even with all of that, uh, it was still a very challenging market. And what we've seen, though, is that appetite to lend in those kind of loans has just pulled back. So that's why you're seeing at the moment all this appetite for low risk, very low credit risk type of products. So T-bills on chain over collateralized lending, even uh, the idea of real world assets um, when you look at the kind of duration, people people are people are wondering like, what can I what can I lend against that is super low risk? And they're also asking for much lower yields than they were. Twenty twenty two, it was like you needed twenty percent plus to get anyone interested. It's uh, it's like a fever dream. Uh, <laughs> looking back on it at this yeah, point, yeah, yeah, we, we were all insane. But um, it, it begs the question then: Do you think that people's risk appetite is lower because they were stung by that contagion, or just because the risk free rate on those T bills is so incredibly high? I mean, if you can go get at yeah. certain points, you've been able to get five plus percent on what people would view as the risk-free benchmark, right? So that makes DeFi a lot less appealing because you're not going to take on extra yeah. risk to get one more percent. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think it's a compounding, uh, it's the compounding effect of, of both of those things. So, you know, whenever risk-free rates rise, growth, like the pricing on growth assets comes off and the demand, you know, the, the opportunity costs demand that people need to hit also changes. And so here, We've seen a lot of capital flood out of the system um, and go, you know, go back into TradFi. So in some way, by bringing the traditional, like the risk-free rate from traditional finance on chain, we can hope, hopefully enable a lot of the capital to remain on chain. And it becomes kind of like an access product. Like if you talk, right. uh, Scott, to a number of startups in the space today, they'll say it's tremendously difficult to go and open bank accounts. Um and so in this way, we can kind of offer them a product where they don't have to go through and onboard with a bank and then onboard with a broker. They just get it right there on chain and they can transparently see all of the loans backing it in real time. Um, hopefully, the positive side effect of this shrinking access to, to banking facilities and banking services is that more people try and you know, conduct their banking and their financial transactions all on chain. We already pay a number of our um, contractors on chain and try and pay vendors where possible using USDC or USDT. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So then what type of institutions are we actually talking about here? Because I would imagine that uh, that what you just described only gets past the risk managers of crypto native funds and people who really understand this, but you can't uh, not going to have pensions and endowments doing it in that manner yet. Yes. Uh, I think you're right. So, on um, in terms of the fund, in terms of the um, entities and individuals who would use this type of product, it's mostly going to be crypto, like crypto startups, particularly those who are offshore, um, where they have you know an additional layer of challenge um, accessing banking facilities. So, high net worths startups that might have recently raised a round and want to uh, you know want to make sure that their uh, treasury assets are protected and earning a yield that that offsets inflation, but 
as I look out at what we need to get to, to to bring pension funds into the space, we just need more types of assets and a larger volume of assets that have higher yields on chain. Pension funds have extremely long time horizons, but they also have access to just about every kind of asset class that they could want at the moment. So, you know, I could potentially see some appetite for doing loans collateralized with Bitcoin or with ETH because those offer relatively high yield. They're quite short duration and can be relatively liquid. And they can't go and get that from Morgan Stanley or from Deutsche Bank. They would have to come to crypto native providers to get that type of asset. So that's kind of like the teaser that we would look for to start to bring them in. And eventually more pension funds will have to come in just because they need every source of yield that they can get. Yeah, I mean, in the off-chain world, I think a spot ETF would have solved some of that. Right, uh, maybe yeah. <laughs> giving them a product that they can asset access. But to your point, a risk the risk management team at a pension or endowment can take five years just to decide if they even want to touch an asset class. So I assume when you're talking about this, this is on an extremely extended timeline, especially for crypto, where one year is like dog years, right? Yeah, yeah, it's totally like totally like dog years. And I expect you know it probably got set back a little bit as well, um, given that a couple of them are kind of burned um, in Celsius and FTX um, last year. How much has that, would you say, set back or has it helped? I don't know. How, how much has that affected your business in either direction? I was talking to Mike Novogratz the other day on Spaces and he was like, yeah, Sam set us back two years. And then I asked Fred Thiel from a marathon the question yesterday and he said, longer than two years. So, <laughs> so as an industry, but I that probably... it could be a boon for you, I would imagine, to some degree. Yeah, well, it's... um. It's a it's a it's a double edged sword in that it um, as an industry kind of set it back definitely a couple of years I would say but it also pointed to or highlighted some of the benefits of doing this um, in a decentralized way or rather when I say decentralized I mean using smart contracts because it is a fundamentally different kind of architecture whether or not the smart contracts are controlled by someone the fact the assets sit there and can't just be yanked out and kind of um, it can't be yanked out and used in an opaque way. And that um, in the case of lending, you can see the performance of all of the loans on chain and you can see the terms of those loans. Makes a big difference when you're entrusting other people with your money or to lend that out and um, you know report on how those loans are performing. So I think it, it, um, it helped our business in terms of clearing away some of the competitors. Um, but the flip side is that there's far less liquidity this year than there was uh, the previous year. Also, quantita quantitative, um, you know, tightening kind of impacted that a little bit as well. Um, other things equal, if we just had more uh, more liquidity in the space, it would be a lot easier to kind of, uh, or you know, th the debt cycle would be on an uptrend again. I think the liquidity will come back, but it's interesting. I have to laugh because what you just described—the transparency of the loan and being to able to track it and where the funds are—you don't even get that in a bank. And no. we've seen ba bank failures where now I think for the first time in a while, I won't say the first time in history, but the first time in a while, people are thinking, well, what the hell is my bank doing with the money that I deposit? Yeah. Well, how, how and how I think about the, the kind of banking system that we're creating today, Scott, if you look at it, the larger banks are getting larger. And so whilst we might smooth out some of the volatility, the system that we're creating is one in which the largest bank, you know, if JP Morgan were to have some kind of risk event and need a bailout, it's getting to the size where the government wouldn't be able to afford to do that anymore. So we've created a system that's less volatile in the short to medium term, but over the longer term has a heightened risk of a systemic failure because you now have a participant who's so large that it could take down, you know, take down the whole banking system. When I think about um, a level playing field and like a healthier, you know, a healthier financial system, it is that you have this kind of concept of anti-fragility where it would be better if we had uh, many smaller banks where the individual failure of any one of those is not cataclysmic to the system. And that's what I think with smart contracts is it's kind of like we took the software to run a bank and then we externalized it so that anyone could use it. And then if you build you know, smart contract lending platforms on top of it, um, but they're using this infrastructure, it's a level playing field where they're kind of a little bit, uh, they're a little bit more equal in the capabilities that they have. And then what you could do is 
have a number of smaller banks operating on top of a blockchain system, conducting lending and borrowing transparently um, with far less risk of a large, uh, you know, a much larger player failing and dragging down the whole system. I love that you mentioned anti-fragility because as much as I hate to invoke Nassim Talib now that he uh, hates hates us all, um, all, all Bitcoiners, but I was going to respond with the analogy of burning, you know, small fires to effectively save the forest exactly. and avoid avoid the lar larger fire. And I think you eloquently explained why that's such a massive risk now. I guess the question yeah. then is, yeah. does crypto actually you know does DeFi help mitigate that risk or is it so big that it's it's i mean it's gonna be a problem regardless i think it i think it takes time um when i look at DeFi, we're a we're a really small um rounding error on the total financial system at the moment you know of just the us let alone the world and so um as i look at how, how like how does DeFi chart a path to kind of take over most of the financial system it needs to it needs to have a, a greater variety of products so you can't just only rely on over collateralized lending because it's then it's constrained by the market cap of all of the crypto assets so that's where things like real world assets come into it because then if you could lend in DeFi but collateralize with something in the real world you can then you know write a 10 million dollar loan without needing 10 million dollars of bitcoin or eth pledged against it so i think that's one thing that helps the other would just be, you know, regulatory clarity and a framework in which to operate. Banks, banks, and other large financial players are continually reluctant to use um, use smart contracts, touch crypto assets because of what they perceive as this kind of regulatory sword of Damocles hanging over their head. If they do, um, if they were to use it, then you know, I think it's not hard to see a world in which DeFi is you know, a hundred times larger in the next 10 years in terms of who's participating in it. A hundred times larger, but do you see it as a replacement for those legacy systems or do you see it as a parallel rail? Or do you see it as legacy systems themselves evolve and start operating on DeFi? Like, will it be JP Morgan and Morgan hmm. Stanley and Goldman Sachs? They'll just be using our tools? I don't think so. Um, I would... You know, I think they will start to use the tools, but I think of it as kind of an innovator's dilemma. So you have this new paradigm shift and the people who became the biggest e-commerce retailers weren't the biggest big box retailers. And similarly, when the big box retailers came about, it wasn't, you know, A&P who came and capitalized on that on that shift in retailing. Um, so the way I think about it is those systems or those incumbents are so tied to the way that things are done. They're so deeply invested that now there's this new kind of infrastructure. I can't see them transitioning and just wholesale replacing their systems. So I think you'd have new players who who grow. They might buy the legacy players as they start to take up more market share. But I do think that you need you need a business model that's oriented around using a new type of infrastructure or technology. Um, and the uh, the ultimate thing I think is that. Um, this is going to take over the financial system because I used to work in banking and I remember trying to get, you know, reports on loan performance. It would take days and you'd need multiple technicians to pull that stuff from a database versus, you know, with Maple, we have a dashboard that reads the loan performance in real time because it just grabs it from the blockchain. And that updates second by second. I love the idea of us, you know, buying the legacy systems or taking them over, but it it rings too much of when SBF said he was going to buy Goldman Sachs that it gives me like hives. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely valid point. But I think um, if I look at uh, if I look at um, an example from kind of recent history in financial innovation, you had uh, the neobanks come about, but the neobanks didn't really right. own their infrastructure, so they really struggled to kind of replace incumbent banks because they're always renting the infrastructure for them from them so you have this pricing issue whereas what you can have now is you can create an um a banking operation that's vertically integrated because its tech stack is the blockchain you know plus a front end and so i think if you own the tech stack then the business is not constrained by having to pay a tithing to the legacy banks yeah, I mean, we see things being built in this space that probably rival or at least uh, a fraction of what can be done in legacy systems like in a matter of a month. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, and at one one hundredth of the cost. Yeah. We, and how much do then, I, I have to ask this, it keeps coming up, but 
Do you have hey. a plan for, or how much do you think AI will affect that? I think AI, I see AI as like a, a, a cost reducer. So if I wanted to use it in our business, it'd be in two ways. One, to help developers be more productive so that we can build faster. So that reduces the fixed cost of running a financial company. And then also in things like credit decisioning. So if you could have an AI now just be able to read, you know, read a digitized balance sheet, um, also look at some ongoing monitoring from a borrower, then you could have it in real time adjust the credit score or the, you know, the loan terms to a borrower. And so it suddenly becomes much lower cost. So I think AI is going to be a huge boon to financial companies, particularly lending companies, just because it really sucks out a lot of a lot of the costs in the business. And obviously the time it would take a human to do it. But speaking of humans doing things, at the beginning, you sort of hinted at the yeah. fact that you have to still vet your borrowers, right? Yeah. And so I imagine yeah. that's, you You said that's not trustless, right? You have a person who effectively still has to do that. Is that correct? That's right. So you've got a person who will review the borrower's financials, meet management, get ongoing, you know, ongoing reports of financial performance from them, and then determine, you know, determine if they're still uh, going to be able to repay the loan. And also what price do you charge them? Because on a whole, you don't expect no borrowers to default. The idea is that the proportion who, of borrowers who default is less than the overall interest rate that you're charging like so that as a whole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Some people are going to die and you're going to have to pay out life insurance, but yes. it's just a, it's a, it's a numbers game, unfortunately. So does there become a time then when AI or smart contracts largely even replace that? Or do you think that there's always going to have to be sort of the human touch? I think, I think it's, um, I think the way it'll go is it'd be, it'd be like a really good human underwriter having a team of 10 people supporting them and making recommendations. Okay. So they'll be, they'll, yeah. So they'll be there uh, to kind of tie break decisions or overrule when they need to. But ultimately most of the decisions can be made by, you know, most of the decisions can be made by the AI. It's like with pilots on planes, like they, they really, what they do is they kind of fly for a portion, like take off landing, but for most of the flight it's on autopilot, but you want them there just, on the on the you know the one in a thousand chance that something goes wrong hopefully less that's yeah that <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, that, i was like how many flights do we fly a day okay that's too bad <laughs> thousands yeah, right yeah I, I get that i get the message though certainly so we kind of talked about what you're doing already the fact obviously that now t-bills i think treasury is really exciting What's next? I mean, are there are there other assets that you see as sort of lower hanging fruit that you can either tokenize or access as collateral? First, uh, what are the next targets? What are you What are you looking to do uh, in the I guess nearer term? Yeah, so T T bills are the T T bills are the near term one um, that we'll do launch that pool properly next week. We're then going to go into investment grade assets, so higher yielding stuff. Um, which would be of interest for you know some of the larger on-chain balance sheets, whether it's some of the exceptionally loud large DAOs in the space that want to hit you know SOFR plus a hundred or two hundred basis points. Um, but the other the other opportunity I see is this one uh, of assets on other chains. So you know we used to take uh, wrapped Bitcoin as collateral or wrapped ETH as collateral, but I see a number of people want to have uh, layer one Bitcoin. So by integrating with all of the custodians out there, I think we can hugely increase the addressable market. And the other one is liquid staked uh, ETH. So I think a number of people are are doing that as a source of yield. I think institutional adoption of that is going to be huge. And so we're going to uh, we're going to try and connect and take that as collateral so that we can, you know, so that we can expand, serve those institutional borrowers. And also a ton of people are willing to lend against that now. Do you think they're largely going to go into the liquid staking market? Or do you think that now that we've had Chappella, the Shanghai update, that a lot of institutions actually would just rather stake directly into the contract as the withdrawal times come down? I mean, they're already sub 10 days, 10 days after the, <clears throat> the upgrade. Sure. That's likely going to only get shorter with uh, net you know, inflows increasing. Obviously, the outflows have decreased very quickly. So... I, do you think that this is a that this is a, a a benefit to liquid staking? It makes the whole market bigger, or do you think that more people are going to stake directly into the 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 ETH contract? I think I, I 
I do think you're on the money there that a lot of people will now go direct to the to the ETH contract, or they might do it through a custodian. The interesting thing is that if they do it through a custodian, as long as it's sitting there um, in the custodian's control, if we're integrated with them, we could then accept it as collateral, lend to them on chain. And then you have this kind of twin benefit where they can keep their assets with a custodian, but borrow against them. So it opens up capital efficiency for them. And then somebody who's lending to them is now much happier because they can see that the loan's performing on chain. They can see the collateralization level. And they know that even if we go bankrupt, or if um, if somebody who underwrote the loan went bankrupt, they could still seize the collateral through the custodian if there was a default. Um, so yeah, so I, I think we're, we're trying to we are trying to integrate and bring kind of DeFi and Stefi um, services closer together there. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I guess the next question then is, will those custodians even be allowed to custody those assets without them being declared securities, right? Because we saw, uh, certainly I I speak obviously from coming in the USA, and I know that's not the case everywhere, but Kraken obviously just paid a huge fine. Interestingly, the bulk of the withdrawals from the Ethereum uh, contract after the upgrade were Kraken's forced withdrawals. But uh, there's uh, certainly a huge question mark for a lot of uh, companies in the United States as to whether they're going to be able to continue that staking as a service or whether the structure they do it within is is a security or not. Is is that a huge concern or you think it just moves somewhere else? I, I believe it just kind of moves somewhere else, but... Yeah, I, I I don't actually think it'll be a huge concern at the end of the day. I think um, provide, you know, as we've seen, like Coinbase has positioned itself and taken the stance that this is just the, the provision of a technology service and they're just passing through a base yield. They're not actually, you know, uh, doing active allocation decisions there. And I think that'll probably end up being um, kind of the decision that's adopted. And so yeah. to the extent that it remains here, you know, we, we would try and support that to the extent that it moves offshore. That's the great thing about having a global business on chain. You can just, we, you know, you can follow the money. Yeah. I think that's going to be litigated. So I just hope that they, yeah. they win. It's too I big mean, a business not to. I, yeah. I, I don't think people are cognizant of just how big of a part of these businesses staking is. Hmm. It's a huge, I, th- I think it's a huge uh, business. It's it's probably even run as a loss leader, potentially at some businesses like Coinbase, just to bring bring in the inflow you want them, and get you them want doing, the, doing yeah. the trading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're a smaller staking provider, it's kind of like competing with Amazon there because you've got Coinbase can run it almost like a loss leader and get it in for other parts of their business, um, which means it's hard for other providers to price it economically. It's their gateway drug. To get you yeah, onto exactly. the platform, uh, we, the same, I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. In the same way, we're 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 kind of trying to do that with the the T bill product gateway drug. Get people into into doing this on chain and um, give them a really low risk, uh, low credit risk product uh, to get them thinking about you know other forms of lending on chain. How much of your time do you spend thinking about regulation and compliance, or do you think that what you're building basically can just be deployed wherever it makes sense at, at any given time. I mean, we were seeing Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong. I mean, they just effectively, for better or for worse, passed MICA in Europe. We are mm-hmm. seeing some regula- regulatory clarity around the world. Yeah. I, yeah, I think regulatory competition is good because it encourages the U.S. to step up its game or else it's going to lose innovation entrepreneurship to, you know, Hong Kong, Europe, uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi. Um, so that's ultimately a good thing. Uh, I don't think we can kind of operate, uh, operate, you know, with the posture that we can just kind of go kind of just do this wherever we want. Um, because we do serve institutional clients and they can't easily shift their operations. We kind of have to, you know, kind of have to be available where they are. And that means working within the confines of regulation. Um, what you're seeing though, is it just, um, it becomes a bit of a maze in terms of selecting a path there so whether it's going through the route of exemptions or you know or some other kind of um some kind of pathway the hard part has been it's been very difficult to see what could you actually do to get a registration approved and that's kind of been what innovate what the innovators and the people in the space have been saying for years now we just want kind of an indication of like what would we have to do to register and, and be approved 
I don't think we're going to get that clarity in the United States Probably anytime not. soon. I think they are purposely opaque to be able to just uh, enforce without ever having to give clarity. I mean, you literally get Gensler on the floor of Congress. Una unable to answer. I'm a security. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. I mean, you can't get an answer to the most simple questions. I don't think we're going to get an answer to the complex ones, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do tend to agree. So in that vein, it is good to have other jurisdictions kind of offer a path forward so that at least if you uh you know if you wanted to explore one of them you know you, you could um so i think that's for the positive coinbase is doing it right what seemed yep. like what seemed like a threat you know oh we'll go offshore if uh we you know lose if we have to continue dealing with regulators well they've registered in bermuda they're apparently mm -hmm. registering in other places and have talked about already launching derivatives products which they don't even have in the united states offshore so i don't know if that's theater or if it's a legitimate threat i i think that their business is largely dependent on the united states so i don't, I don't think they can build that necessarily elsewhere with a competitive advantage but we're actually seeing it in real time from the biggest players hmm. there are a number of uh u.s trading firms who have now you know moved uh derivatives operations to bahamas bermuda um you know so you're right it's it's not an empty threat scott sad yeah it's unfortunate because i mean like you know you, you have this uh huge market and you have you know people in the u.s who want to participate in this um there just needs to be kind of a framework whether it's a sandbox or some other you know some other kind of framework to allow people to offer these services and you know i don't, I don't think that it needs to be an all or nothing thing where they either all need to be allowed or all banned i'm sure you could um you could set up regulatory sandboxes or other ways to do it in such a way that it's, you know, minimizing risks, if that's what people are concerned about. How much retail participation do you have on the platform? And how do you address your average crypto trader or investor who wants a loan for their house or their car or just, you know, wants to borrow money? Uh, very little, actually. So, um, yeah. uh, it, it tends to be mostly institutions who are depositing. Um, and on the lending side, retail lending is just so regulated that there's a huge cost to setting up that kind of business. I mean, you know, Goldman's took a huge loss on their consumer lending oh, business. Yeah. And that's because it's really hard to collect on it. It's huge, you know, huge cost to uh, to set up and conduct. And so what we've tried to stick to is commercial and institutional lending on the borrower side. And then, um, you know, because of regulation, it's a lower risk proposition to try and stick to either accredited investors or institutions in terms of taking money into a platform like this. They understand the risk a bit better. Um, and there's, you know, just there's there's more regulatory exemptions that you can use to, um, to, to serve those customers. If we could serve retail, I think it'd be wonderful. Um, but we kind of need a little bit more clarity there before we're able to. Yeah, and the bandwidth to vet all those retail customers coming in when you talk about the fact that you need to have sort of a human touch point probably doesn't make that much sense. And yeah. as you alluded to earlier, in sort of the previous cycle, the biggest appetite for borrowing was basically market makers or institutions, mm -hmm. I, I mean, effectively, that wanted to get short, right, for a hedging strategy or something. How much appetite is there for that? I, I know you said it was decreased. And... At what rate are they willing to pay? Because to be able to offer those massive yields that we have in the previous cycle meant that those people were hungry mm -hmm. to pay even more to be able to borrow the coins. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the, um, I mean, some of the larger borrowers that we had on the platform last year, you know, might borrow up to 100 or 150 million at a time. And those strategies, interestingly enough, it was to provide liquidity on the centralized exchanges. So as retail participants go to, yeah, exactly. So as retail participants go to Coinbase or Binance or, or a Kraken, these market makers are providing the execution and the funds they use to do that, they would borrow from platforms like ours and other CFI providers. So we see that appetite really correlates upwards when retail trading volume on exchanges goes up. It's been a good start to the year. It's definitely gotten better than it was late last year. Um, and we, you know, we want to see that, um, that increase in trading volume continue. But the, the rates that they're willing to pay at this stage, you're probably looking at like low teens rates on unsecured lending. And if you were to if you were to do one to one collateralized or greater, you could probably go anywhere from between eight to 14 percent overall. So it's going to start the really sophisticated players will borrow at, you know, a few percent above T-bills and or SOFR. 
And then the less sophisticated players will be borrowing in the kind of the low teens level. So it's a relatively good yield. If you're a lender and you can get over collateralized loans from a fund that has a longer time horizon, then, you know, you could be, you could be lending out to them at, you know, 13% with, you know, liquid collateral and uh, the ability to recall the loans out of, you know, in 48, 72 hours. Yeah. And I've seen that market makers are struggling a bit more in this market because of sort of the lack of liquidity and lack of volume to actually make money. So I would just have to imagine that there's not that many who can confidently take a 13% loan and know that they're going to actually beat it. It's it's a squeeze out. There, what, you, what you're seeing is that the low cost providers of market making, which is to say it's a scale game at the moment. So those who already had the infrastructure, they have the experienced traders, those are the ones who are doing okay in this market. The smaller ones who were, you know, startups in 2020, 2021, 2022, they're getting squeezed out just because, yeah, just like they, they, they can't, they don't have the systems to withstand the fragility and um, their cost base is generally going to be too high. So interesting. It's like, I mean, you know, that's like winter mute and jump, whatever, all these guys, but it's the same story with mining or anything really in this industry. And you even talked about it with banks. Right. It seems that yeah. seems to be just a, a sort of symptom of all of the problems that we're having with the financial systems within and outside of crypto is this centralization into bigger players as people get squeezed out. I mean, we saw Bitcoin price basically go from 69,000 to 15,000, but hash rate has continued to go up. Right. Yeah. So for mining, yeah. I know that's not what we're talking about here, but that annihilates yeah. anyone who's not one of these pools and actually increases centralization. Yeah, no, we, we, we actually looked at uh, doing a mining lending strategy on the platform. We're kind of revisiting it now. So late last year, like September, October, we saw such a you know tremendous amount of pain in that sector. But we've looked at we've looked at how would you adjust the underwriting and the loan structuring to miners to, you know, to 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 work with the constraints like, you know, like hash rate and hash price at the moment. And so I'm 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 actually interested and confident there would be a way that you could do Bitcoin denominated loans to miners where it hedges their revenues because the revenues are in Bitcoin. You do it at a lower LTV and you do more conservative pricing against the uh, against the ASICs. The problem was that that whole cycle I was just gonna ask was if just you being could collateralize the ASICs. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. could you collateralize the actual machines? It's, and especially now they're so cheap, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Um but one of the other interesting theses I have, since you were talking about like kind of the washout of um, of people in the consolidation, is do the energy providers or the energy producers do they just come in and start buying the miners? Because if you're if you're Aramco, you're the low, you're one of the lowest cost energy producers in the world, so you can theoretically have the highest margin um, Bitcoin mining revenue. Uh, I've heard that that's happening in Russia. I spoke to Fred. Oh, really? I, yeah. I, I spoke to Fred Thiel uh, recently, the CEO of Marathon uh, Digital yeah. Holdings. They're one of the biggest miners, and he said that whether it's the government or a private company that's effectively yeah. the government, that in Russia they're seeing a huge amount of hash rate coming online. And obviously, since things are largely socialized there, it's probably yeah. just a uh, effectively a wing of the power company and the government that's doing it. And I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's um, well, it, it you know, it just it, it also eliminates like a huge cost of running an en- energy business, which is distribution. If you just hook up the energy production to miners, at the then site. you don't actually, yeah, at the site, then you don't actually have to connect the power assets to the grid, and you don't have to actually worry about distribution or sale of them. Exactly um, what he said. He said the transmission lines are the biggest problem. That's obviously why Bitcoin miners go where they are, but that's also where you can get the wasted electricity. It seems like such a almost like irrelevant cost to do it if you were the actual mm-hmm. power company literally just hire a, a team that knows how to do it just get it done yeah and it's so cheap yeah, right yeah. now day six yeah yeah no super super low cost and for some of them like the power just gets wasted otherwise so it's it's, it's yeah, effectively it's a zero marginal free. cost revenue stream yeah yeah if not negative because the waste is it costs you something right and so to be able to use that it's pretty incredible also i think this would solve a huge problem uh for miners having to sell their coins right yeah. if if they can get uh effectively get loans for you that keeps them afloat they don't have to sell equity if they're traded and they don't yeah. have to sell off their supply i think that that 
then helps the market in general. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it, it it's really it, it's actually a very healthy hedge for their business. Like as long as they have some ability to forecast like how many units of Bitcoin they'll be able to mine in the future, then they effectively lock in that forward revenue by taking the loan in in BTC now, um, so that. Yeah, so that um, in future they don't have to sell it, they can just uh, you know use the proceeds of the Bitcoin mining to repay the loan. You should do that. <laughs> <laughs> working on it. Working on it. <laughs> I, I want to go back a bit to, to to retail. Obviously, you said you're you're not really mm. servicing them. It, it doesn't make much sense. The people that were servicing these retail loans were the Celsiuses and BlockFi's mm -hmm. of the world. So is that just kind of dead for now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's hard to, like it's hard to see another provider coming in and you know servicing that clientele because that you need consumer lending licenses in almost every state in order to do so and um just the, as well like the collection costs and the administration costs of serving you know serving that market is um is huge. So I, I I can't see anybody coming out and serving you know re doing loans to retail in stable coins or or um you know against Bitcoin anytime soon. There's the consolidation, man. Yeah, it's just like a widowmaker business at this stage. Sucks to sucks to just be like the average guy who wants to really participate in all of this, especially if you're in the United States in 2023. It just sucks. Yeah. Well, that's that's the um, I would say that's the clientele that will probably go to you know Ave or a compound or a maker in this kind of market. Like a, you know a decentralized decentralized permissionless platform is probably the only um, player who can you know who can serve that need for somebody who wants to just take out like a five thousand dollar loan against some some Bitcoin or some ETH. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that there was a sort of a washout of the entire industry, but I think that it really, the story that doesn't get told is how well DeFi actually performed through all of that. I mean, people, I think, mm. obviously look yeah. at the, the decreases in TVL over the time and just say it kind of died, but like the loans were, you know, the loans were liquidated in an orderly manner and they were collateralized and smart contracts kept humming on and to be fair tvl yeah. i think is up 30 percent across DeFi in 2023 so at least there has been a significant recovery alongside the price of bitcoin and everything else yeah yeah i mean the the the, the total volume in DeFi, i expect is going to track you know overall crypto market cap pretty closely um it relies a lot on you know on the coins that are driving the market cap increase as collateral so that makes total sense um but the, yeah, the I mean the thing about DeFi was that it was kind of you know al algorithmic, and it um you know it just functioned properly in terms of closing out risk. Like where a lot of over collateralized lenders lost money was you know the period between when they first issue the margin call and when the person actually responds to them on Telegram um, was wide enough that their their loan went from over collateralized to uncollateralized uh, under collateralized. Um, we even even in the under collateralized lending space because that's you know that's where maples played um the transparency of the lending on chain though also forced the people approving the loans to be much more careful um because you know because they couldn't rely on collateral to uh to backstop losses so even on maple as a platform as a whole there were only two borrowers to actually default over the entire course of last year wow. yes yeah, two more two more than we would have liked but you know compare that against you know, nearly two billion in loans that have been done. But you said that's part of the business. I mean, the part of the it business is, is, is calculating the acceptance for how many is appropriate and and knowing where you'll make it up on the other side. I I have to go back to the fact that you said like you guys denied three arrows capital, right? And I I've told this story. I was in Dubai maybe in February mm -hmm. and I crashed a meeting with the three arrows capital guys because they were raising for OpenX or whatever. And uh, yeah, you know, I I just wanted to yeah. show up and get some answers. They they, they were not expecting me, but, uh, and I said, you know, listen, I'm a Voyager creditor. So I I've touched on all this. And I said, what the hell did you tell Steve Ehrlich at Voyager? What lie? I said, what lie did you tell him to get $700 million? Like, what did you, you obviously, you know, had to lie about your leverage positions. They would have never given you money if they knew what you were doing with it. And he says, he literally was so hungry to give someone $700 million to, you know, be able to pass his yield on. He didn't ask us for anything. Yeah, it, um, that's not. Um, yeah, it's 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 not hard to believe. Like, 
there were there was so much capital floating around the space that you had all these businesses that had liabilities because they would borrow the money from people, promise a yield, and then they've got to go put it to work. And so, like that o- that oversupply of capital caused a huge decrease in the quality of underwriting that was done on counterparties. And also, there was there was actually a viewpoint that you weren't necessarily lending it to people as much as you were outsourcing yield generation to them. So a lot of people viewed it as like, I partner with a market maker and I outsource my yield generation to them. And it's like, no, no, no. When you give someone money, that's an uncollateralized loan. Yeah, that's a uh, definitional stretch if ever I've heard one, but that is consistently what people were saying. But we gave them the money to earn the yield. But no, you just gave them the money. Stop it right there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, consider any token project, right? And you talk about, um, there are a number of token projects who give a loan to a market maker, and they can be su- like they can be super against uncollateralized lending. But what are the tokens to the market maker if not an uncollateralized loan? And I can guarantee you, if you talk to nine out of ten of them, none of them have ever seen the financials of the market maker that they just gave their tokens to. Um, and so that's, that's you know effectively them giving out like a few million dollar loan to somebody without actually having any idea how much equity is on that balance sheet. So they can do that while simultaneously holding this idea in their mind that uncollateralized lending is stupid or silly or careless. And they're just not viewing it as such. And that that's kind of a trap. And you have to feel for smaller projects because A, they're not going to probably they're probably actually not even sophisticated enough to vet the financials of that market maker anyway. Because if you're a developer and come up with a project idea, that doesn't automatically make you an amazing CF- CFO or that. And I think that's been a huge problem is that people didn't have CFOs and didn't know how to manage their treasuries. But also, if you want your mm-hmm. coin to be tradable, you have to have a market maker because it's low liquid. And yeah. you can't get yeah. on an no, you, exchange. You so it's a, you, your token literally will not exist in the minds of you know retailer traders if you don't have a market maker creating that market. That's true. That's true. Often you can't even get listed on an exchange if you don't have uh, if you don't have an arrangement with a market maker. I don't think people understand how much is happening in the background here just for you to be able to buy and sell a token on an exchange. But do yeah. you think that that's yeah. going to become more sophisticated and that people are going to become better at this? I mean, I think we've seen. You know, everyone says that we haven't. It's funny. I have these conversations with maybe people who don't get the market as well. They're like, well, as long as the Doge and SHIB and all these things exist, it means there's still too much excess in the crypto market that has to be washed out. But I say to them, like, you clearly haven't looked at the tail end 95% of coins that are literally at zero. Yeah, I mean, like things that were that were doing hundred X's on on like uh, pre-seed launches or whatever in, Mm -hmm. in 2021 are worth fractions of a penny a coin. And even the pre-seed investors have like, went from having like a hundred grand to $5 worth of these positions. So I do think we have seen that, but like, are the Mm -hmm. new projects that come out in the next cycle, just going to be forced to use predatory market makers and, you know, uncollateralized loans? Have we learned anything? I don't know. It's it's a tough one. I, I am seeing more people, I'm seeing more people come out who kind of offer the service of betting market makers. I think uh, Glass Markets is an interesting one where I've spoken to the founder there. Um, but uh, as I, I, I put it this way, I don't think we have a great answer yet for if you're a project, what do you do other than give a loan to a market maker? Or you kind of rely on you, you kind of rely on their reputation. Some, you know, some of them will start giving out financials, I think, but also it'd be kind of interesting if somebody solved that problem with a protocol level, where like a market maker stakes some kind of collateral to borrow uh, the tokens from a project. It's free money for the big market makers. Yeah. I mean, that's free money for almost... the big market makers because it's the, yet again, the yeah. centralization problem. You're going to go to the winter mute or whoever it is, you know, because you know that yeah. they're a name. I mean, but that's how, uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these companies, but that's literally like how 3AC continued to get loans and loans and loans from everyone because they were 3AC, not because yeah. they had showed yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. Same with same with Alameda, like the number of projects who had taken an investment from them and then used them as as their market maker um, because of that. Um, it is interesting though. Like one of the things I ha- one of the things I haven't seen, I haven't seen um, new token projects stop coming out. Um, like it's the pace of the pace of new projects starting has slowed a bit, um, but I think a lot of them are still bought into the idea of issuing a token uh, when they launch because of the ability to generate interest in the product. 
um, you know, bootstrap participation and reward early supporters as well. Yeah, I think that there's been quite a few that sort of raised and then were waiting for the bear market to end because they just didn't like the environment of launching a token that was going to go mm-hmm. straight down. But I think that that's thawing. I, I agree with you now. I don't think people, even though they maybe should be, I don't think they are living in fear necessarily of the market. I do think that they're they're coming out. Mm-hmm. But that that you know I, that just makes me scared that we're going to see. I mean, humans are going to human, right? But the the same uh, repeated mistakes into the next cycle. Yeah, what is it? What is it they say? History, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Yeah, it certainly does in this industry. And history is like three years old instead of three hundred years <laughs> yeah, yeah, old. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, dog <laughs> years. As the cycles <laughs> tight, you're like, we just did this, man. <laughs> it was like last week. I, I mean, people don't know. Yeah, you know, we're recording this on like April twentieth, and like we just saw this Pepe coin and go up, you yeah. know, thousands of percents or whatever. And crypto GPT raising $10 million at 250 million valuation just because they put GPT in the name. I saw a bear, is it bearer chain just, just raised at like a $400 million valuation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally like, I mean, and I, a bunch, and I, and I yeah, think that a bunch the, of anonymous people, and the people behind the it are four anonymous guys with like Barra in their Twitter name or something. Yeah. Barachain, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I think I literally joked about it that the, I would prefer if you're going to make a meme, at least call it Bula Chain, you know, like you know, <laughs> us, uh, some some hope. <laughs> it's like the government just, you know, like we, now we just call it the bad thing that's going to rug pull you instead of uh, instead of even pretending. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I, I know we're kind of getting up against time here. Anything I might have missed here? Anything that you guys are looking to build maybe further down the road that we haven't haven't talked about or anything you're excited about no no i I think we covered most of it i mean look next next week we're aiming to launch the uh you know properly launch and do the first loans out of the the uh cash management pool which would do t-bill collateralized loans and then keep an eye out for early june we want to have this maple prime product live which would be the integration with uh qualified custodians um so you know hopefully opening up a wider universe um of uh of lending options for people that doesn't you know that includes tokens on other chains whether it's avax bitcoin um maybe even barachain who knows it's coming man <laughs> it's the, the 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 protocol of the future well i for one hope that you eat jp morgan and goldman sachs lunch and that you uh outright <laughs> replace them and that uh we we start hearing your opinions instead of jamie diamonds on the uh, mainstream media <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I'm definitely cheering for you. Where where can people follow you and check out uh, Maple after this conversation? If you go to Twitter, you'll find us at Maple Finance, and then the website is Maple Finance. Um, so you can you can reach out to us through either of those channels. And if you like syrup, you'll love the website. It's just yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, syrupy sweet. Syrup fan. It is very syrupy <laughs> sweet. It. It's a great name. Sid, man, this was really an awesome conversation. I I want to just invite you back now. So I hope that yeah, you, uh, you're willing to. to willing to do this again in the future. Also, it would be really fun to potentially get you on like uh, some spaces or some of our panels. So I really, really loved your perspective and what you're building. So thank you. Love to. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. That's dope.